to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Having heard part of Matthew's account of the first Easter morning, we now turn to some of the insights that Paul was given into what it means. So this is Ephesians chapter 2 on page 1172 or 3. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. On now? Yes, I'm on. <laughs> uh, before we begin, 
I must confess, I'm sorry, I didn't read Brian's email totally correctly, and I, the passage I thought that um, Tim had told me is slightly later in Matthew's Gospel. So if you don't mind, this is what I've prepared my sermon on. So if you'd like to go back to page 1,000, and I'd just like to read the passage that I've actually prepared the sermon on. <laughs> so starting at um, verse 16 in chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. It's really wonderful to be with you here at St. Swithin's this morning. Uh, when my husband and I married um, quite a few years ago, uh, my husband somehow ha- was given or had a picture of St. Swithin's church. We didn't have a lot in the way of furniture or pictures at that time, so we had it framed, and it's sitting on our wall, and it still, still is. And it was only relatively recently that I actually came into the building for the very first time. But a church actually isn't a building, it's the people. So it's really lovely to meet St. Swithin's Church that had been represented by the building on my wall for all those years. Thank you, Brian, for your introduction. And um, I apologize if you're now expecting some agricultural anecdotes, because uh, you won't get them. <laughs> and um, I hope you're also not expecting some great academic theses, uh, because you won't get it either. Uh, Jesus told in stories, and that's what I tend to use. So I wonder. If you've ever had a really low point in your life, a really dark space, and somebody has said to you, oh, just pull yourself together and get on with it. It's not always what we want to hear. It doesn't always make us feel very good. It can send us spiraling down. Sometimes, though, it is what we need to hear. There seems to be an underlying assumption in our society that life is always going to be good and we should always be happy. And I think that's especially true in church. You know, we've got God, we've got Jesus, and somehow we're expected always to be happy. But life isn't quite like that. There are dark patches. And... I think we're uncomfortable with those spaces. We're uncomfortable ourselves. Somehow they seem to be shameful. 
And we're uncomfortable dealing with other people who are going through dark patches. And I think that's sometimes why we say that, oh, come on, pull yourself together, get on with it, sort of thing, because we're not actually very comfortable with that ourselves. I'd like to take you back 2,000 years to a hillside which is now in the, the Golan Heights of modern-day Israel. And I'd like to put you to picture, if you will, a motley crew of men assembled there. There's a few uh, manual laborers over their calloused hands, their sort of rugged, muscular physique. There's a tax man, kind of weedy in comparison. There's a freedom fighter, a potential terrorist, perhaps. And there's a few other odds and sods, all of them with the lofty accolade of being rejects, at least academically. There's not an A-level, there's not an, a degree amongst them, there's probably not a GCSE. They've given up the last three years of their life to follow an itinerant preacher. A man who they thought was going to be something, that he was going to change the world. He was charismatic, he was clever, he had great healing gifts. He told wonderful stories that had great meaning and some of those stories they got and to be honest, a lot they didn't. He wound the academics and the politicians and the religious leaders up in knots, and everybody loved him. Perhaps not those that he'd wound up in knots, but everyone hung on his every word. And he'd chosen them, this motley crew, to follow him, to be with him, to be his close friends, to journey with him. And they thought for, some, for a moment they were something. You know, he sent them out to copy him, to heal people in body, mind, and in spirit. And it worked. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. The leader became a threat to the rulers. And he was found guilty of blasphemy and publicly executed with criminals in the most barbaric, humiliating execution known to the Romans, and they were barbaric. He was shamefully stripped naked, stripped of all his clothing and his dignity. And from their point of view, it was terrifying and humiliating to even have been associated with him. Their world collapsed around them, full of disillusionment and fear. And in that, they scarpered. But then some women they, they knew, as we've heard from our reading, said that they'd encountered him, their leader, their preacher, that he'd risen from the dead and that he'd ordered them to go to a hillside that they all knew. Well, what were women to them in that 
from their point of view, they knew they were prone to imagining things, to, to jabbering a load of nonsense. But they had nothing better to do, so they went. And so there gathered this group of disillusioned men in their dark place on a hillside. And then all of a sudden, he's there. Their leader. Some of them get a glimpse of who he is, of the power and the majesty of God in their friend. And they worship him for the very first time. They worship him. But his response to their worship is to tell them to go in all their darkness and in all their misunderstanding out into the world to teach people all over the world what he's been teaching them for the last three years. I don't think it made sense to them at that time. He told them he would be with them always, and then he vanished. I don't think they were in a place of joy, but still in that place of fear and trepidation. Eleven men in a dark patch in their lives, unsure of how to go forward, and being told to pull themselves together and get on with it. When you think about it, when you think about that story, it's absolute madness, isn't it? But that is the story how Jesus set about changing the world. And those 11 rejects started the worldwide movement we now know as Christianity. Their teaching has led 2.3 billion people throughout the world to follow Jesus. That's nearly a third of the world's population. It's by far the largest religion. The book that contains the story of Jesus, the Bible, is the world's bestseller by absolute miles every year. It's so far in advance of all other books published that it never features on bestseller lists globally. We forget that. <clears throat> His followers have fought to end slavery even against all odds, against the power and the wealth of slave traders and the comfort of slave owners. His followers started teaching people, kids, to read and write so that they had a chance in life. And schools emerged. How many schools are there around here that start Saint something? St. Andrews, St. Stephen's, St. Mary's, St. Greg's, just to name a few off the top of my head, in Bath. They encouraged learning in their centers and universities um, emerged. They cared for the sick and hospitals grew. The teachings and values of that itinerant preacher through those 11 hapless men have shaped the legal systems of a large part of the world, our own country included. I could go on. And of course, they got some things wrong. You know, think of the Crusades, where people actually reverted to their tribalism and didn't put Jesus' teaching first, but tried to advance his cause by their own means. But by and large, his followers have had the largest influence in the world 
for good. And I'm sure most of you know that story. It's not something new and profound. But I think in the society we live in at the moment, where Christianity, we're told, is irrelevant and boring, we can forget that bigger picture. We forget the story of of God working through people. We're familiar with the Bible that we read that we read each week. We forget what God's done through ordinary people ever since. And that he still does today. The passage that I'd read uh, at the end is part of Matthew's gospel and it's known as the Great Commission. It's the time when we believe when believers uh, know as being sent out into the world when we were empowered to do so. But it's also the great co-mission. In the words of John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may, have, may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God has this mission into the world, and Jesus is part of that. He sends Jesus into the world. And then Jesus sends us to do the changing. We don't do it alone. Notice how there were 11 disciples 11 people gathered on that mountainside. We don't do it without God either. It was only at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples that, that they really began to change. They, they suddenly changed from those being those fearful men to being people who gave their life willingly for the gospel. So it's that co-mission, us and God, us and each other that Jesus sends into the world. Because Jesus never wrote anything down. Have you ever noticed that? You know, Moses wrote on tablets or of stone. Well, God wrote through Moses on tablets of stone. The, the, Jesus' friends wrote about, about him and his works. But Jesus never wrote a word. But Jesus writes on flesh. He writes on human hearts, on us. When we write things in stone, they're very rigid and not always as effective as we'd like them to be. And that's not to say, that, you know, we, to, to take, denigrate from the Bible at all. That is the way that God speaks to us so clearly and so often. It's the way we get his story and his picture from the beginning through to the end. It's where we get comfort and nourishment but the way God often works in the world is through flesh. It's through hands and hearts. It's through you and me. So what if God wants to change the world through you, through us? Sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? Sounds like we should be the prime minister or we should uh, be a big business leader or we should at least... Uh, be the leader ahead of a, a big charity. But that's not the way God works. He works in the, li in the little things. 
Have you ever noticed how he uses the insignificant people in the Bible? You know, the little boy, David, the youngest in the family, the least significant in the family, becomes the great king. The old man, Moses, um, refugee even, Moses he uses to lead his people out of slavery. They're just two figures from the Old Testament. But that's the way God works with little people, as I call ourselves, on the ground. He starts with small one-degree moves. If you think of a boat sailing on an ocean, one-degree change of direction actually makes a huge difference to where you end up. I work with a, a little charity called Send a Cow that some of you may, t may have come across. Um, it just started when there were a group of farmers got together, happened to meet a bishop, and found the need for cows in Uganda at a time when they had too many cows. And so they just discerned God in it, but sent a, a group of cows to Uganda. They had no idea where that was going. It was what they could do where they were at. 30 years later, we're just about to celebrate. Over a million people in Africa are permanently lifted out of poverty from that little act. Well, you say it's a, you know, a little act. It was a big thing, but it was a little thing. And I've got a friend who's uh, she's just suddenly twigged. She, she works in, um, in the NHS in an, in an area, in an office that is really poisoned sort of atmosphere. And she's just twigged that her faith really makes a difference. If she follows Jesus, she doesn't have to join in with the, sl with the slander, with the blame culture, with the gossip, with drawing people down. That actually, just by that one degree change of building people up, of accepting her of blame when it's due for her and never putting it onto someone else, just living with that honesty and integrity that Jesus teaches. Slowly, she's beginning to change the culture in her office. It's too early to tell where that's going to go in 10, 15 years' time. It's a one-degree change that makes a difference. And I'm sure, Tim, in the next few weeks, you've got a series on discipleship. I'm sure there are many things that are going to come out to give you ideas of ways just where you can make a difference. But the question really is, are you prepared to allow God to use you to change the world? Are you going to get out of your comfortable space? It's easy to sit in an armchair, isn't it, in an evening and watch telly. And it, it's easy to just sit there and it's only when you're slightly uncomfortable that you actually get off the sofa, whether it's thirst or hunger or the need for a loo or something that's actually got you out of, uh, off the sofa to do something, to move, to change. And it's a little bit like that with faith. You know, Paul alluded to that in his, in his letter to the Ephesians, that sort of comfortable space. And we need to get out of that if we are going to make a difference. It's not easy to make a difference where we're at. And it's often in the, com dis the difficult situations where we're called to act the most. Those poisonous offices, those, I don't know, where, where, you, where you encounter people where it's difficult. We need 
to work with God for his strength and his support and his guidance. And we need to work together. We need to support each other in those difficult places. So when you find yourself in that difficult space, are you able to pull it together with God's help to make a difference where you are? Amen.